Welcome to the uh, the first kickoff uh, public outreach podcast with the Mount Washington Avalanche Center. I got the whole crew here in front of me um, here at Ski the Whites. My name is Andrew Drummond, the owner of Ski the Whites, and I'm joined today with Patrick Scanlon, um, Jack Kingsley, and Jeff Fine. Fine to me. There we go. I didn't want to mess that up. So, and I'll just add on: uh, we are missing Ryan Luthwaite, who's our uh, third snow ranger for the season, and. Jack, we're happy to have with us, who's the um, Harvard Cabin caretaker. So we're happy to have him here today and uh, excited to get the season going. Right. I mean, this is uh, a huge thing. What we do here at Ski the Whites is some some public outreach, some educational resources. And as we get people into the backcountry, it's really important to support uh, those people that support us. And of course, the Mount Washington Avalanche Center's uh, incredible resource for you know, the educational part, but also just like what you guys do out there. And these podcasts are intended for a lot of those people coming up into the backcountry each weekend, but also just a way to document what's happening throughout the winter and a way to check in. And um, I mean, there's lots of things we're going to be talking about the snowpack, we're gonna be talking about incidents, we're gonna talk about future storms, and then all the other things that the Avalanche Center has going on. And maybe answer some questions and go down whatever path makes sense, but try to keep these short and bring on, bring on some people with interesting stories and get people excited, but also sort of, um, keep, keep things in check too. Right. So I'll let, um, yeah, I'll pass it off, pass this off to Patrick and we can talk a little bit. Do you want to go right into it or talk about, there's lots of, Things to this since this is the first podcast of the season, we can talk a little bit about what you guys have been up to, changes going this winter. But um, up to you. Yeah, I mean, we could probably talk for hours about uh, different topics. I think one question that seems to be burning in a lot of people's minds is just like, oh, what are the conditions like right now? And it's it's getting you know it's the middle of December. Um, generally, this time of year is when we start to see some big storms rolling through. People are starting to get out ski touring um, and certainly lift access skiing. So we definitely get a lot of questions around like, hey, like people are ready to get after it and um, start um, interacting with our terrain. And, um, you know, so I thought maybe to start, we could just I could just give a little early season update about, you know, what are the conditions like and, and what has it been like up to this point? And, um, it's, you know, we, we've had some early storms, but we've also had some storms that have been met with, with rain and, and really warm temperatures. So it's been actually, uh, a little bit of, in terms of snow goes, it's been a rough start to the, um, to the winter for us. Um, we like, it's, you know, we're excited too, as, as rangers and forecasters to like get snow and get up into the terrain and start, um, and start forecasting and start looking at, um, start looking at snow and talking to people. So, um, we're, we're definitely antsy as well for the snow to come, but you know, up to this point, um, Jeff and I actually just hiked down, uh, this afternoon from, um, Hermit Lake area. And, uh, that trail right now is bare ground and water ice. It was actually a little treacherous, um, good ankle twisting conditions right now. And you definitely need traction of some sort. Um, uh, we were wearing micro spikes and, and even that was a little slippery on the trail. So it's a little bit, it's been a little dire. I know there have been a few people out getting some early season turns. And, um, and I think that's been, uh, you know, you can, 
it, it looks good sometimes on social media and maybe there have been a few good turns, but I think by and large, um, it, it's been a very thin so far. So we'll talk a little later maybe about this storm that's um, approaching this weekend, which is which we're excited about. Um, but in general, yeah, it's, uh, the, it's been thin and it really hasn't been ready for much skiing. Um, and to, to kind of lead into the main topic we want to talk about tonight, today is, um, um, people have been getting into some of the steeper terrain, which has collected, um, snow and has been holding snow, uh, from wind loading and some, and some, um, smaller snow events just accum- accumulating over the last couple months. And so, you know, Left Gully's seen quite a few ski descents. Uh, Shoot has seen a couple ski descents, but um, you know, we're we're about to dive into an incident that happened um, in the ravine a couple weeks ago. But uh, the theme really is just a thin snowpack with really dirt, you know, nasty runouts that'll that it can chew you up. Um, so maybe should we dive right into um, an incident that happened a couple weeks ago? Does that sound good, Andrew? Yeah, no, that sounds great. I just want to add on that. Yeah, like you can't skin up. You're going to be hiking up into the bowl and you're going to be hiking out of the bowl at least back down to Hermit Lake. And then if you can make it uh, 500 feet or so down the Sherby, like you're going to be dodging water bars and all other sorts of hazards up there. It's like it's I get it. Everyone's anxious and wants to get out, but it's good to get some perspective um, throughout this process. And it's going to be a long winter. I always say it. We were skiing through May, but everyone has their ski gear and it's like it's been really slow at the resorts too. So it's really difficult for us. We can't even really get much time on the Hill and this weather's just been classic dynamic weather patterns that we can't, we haven't been in any sort of rhythm with the weather to get it like a decent window. I mean, we've watched like the warming happening, this wind events, um, then some snow. And so, yeah, it's a lot of patience that goes into this. And so as far as right now, um, yeah, the skiing is not, not worth it. It's like, if you're, if your local hill is blown snow, it's like, this is the time to, to get out there. But yeah, let's, let's jump right into this incident that happened. Gosh, the beginning of the month, huh? Or is this, uh, yeah. So I actually was not, um, I was actually off this day, so I'm going to pass it over to Jeff, who was the incident commander for that. Um, and he can give you a nice play by play. And then we have Jack too, who can jump in about, he was a, one of the first responders. So we get, got some good perspectives today for that. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Pat. So, yeah, I was, uh, that was the, this happened on December 5th and, um, leading up to December 5th, there's, you know, um, Pat mentioned left gully and we've seen a lot of traffic. left gully has been skied quite a bit and we've seen a lot of skiers in there and, um, snow has been come and go good and bad, more bad than good, but skiers seem to be looking to do a lot of hiking and a little bit of skiing. So it's kind of worked out. And, this time of year, for us with the Avalanche Center, you know, we're we're in a point where we're writing what's called the general information statement, which is, it's not a five-scale forecast. We're not writing every day. We're not putting a hazard rating on it. We're talking about what the snowpack is like, what hazards to look out for, just sort of in a general sense. And and the reason that we do that is because we're just not we're just not into the terrain enough to be accurate and precise with a five-scale forecast. And it it it's it, it ends up working out reality. The snowpack the Snow fields are small. They're not connected. It's We keep to a general information bulletin when it's at a point where, you know, as a skier, you're likely to find maybe a small pocket that's, that could create an avalanche. And, and they do. Avalanches do, and they, they can, and they do happen when we're writing these general information bulletin statements. And 
that's where we're at leading into this. You know, we're doing things for the Avalanche Center that are getting ready for the season. We're working on our weather station. We're working on equipment. We're watching the snow, waiting to start riding every day, but we weren't quite there yet. So that's 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 the Avalanche Center leading into this this event that happened on December fifth. And I think to jump to that day. Um, Ryan Luthwaite was in the garage as he was actually working on our snowmobiles in the garage at the time. And I was at home doing paperwork. I have a home office and we're right now with the federal government, we're teleworking, so we work from home. And um, worked with Ryan that day by telephone and we disconnected and I'm doing my thing. And at about, it was about one in the afternoon, I received a phone call from Ryan in the Hill. And I believe Ryan had a radio call, Jack, from you, yep. alerting Ryan to the fact that there was a, an injury or there was a something happened in Left Gully. So what I do at that point, I put down my work and I start making phone calls and try and figure out more about what's going on. It puts me sort of in the, I stop doing my paperwork and I jump into the role of incident command to think about at that point, trying to figure out what happened, um, how many patients out there, how, how, how severe is it, how bad is it, how bad are they injured? I think what we do with the Avalanche Center at that point, the next steps depend on really depends on the injury and how bad it is. And sometimes somebody could take a nasty fall and they're shaken up and give them a few minutes and they can kind of stand up and they realize they can kind of walk out on their own. Ideally, that happens. Uh, that, that didn't happen this time. He was, the person was, was injured to the point where it was severe but not critical. So my first steps at this point was to try and figure out exactly how injured the patient was, where was he, and... What could we do to get him out of there if he needs to be carried out, which is the problem this time of year. We don't have snow machine access. The trails are terrible. It's it's a lot of work. So I immediately went. So I asked Ryan to try and connect more with Jack to find out more details. I started calling around to see who was available to help with the carryout. I figured that was probably going to be the next step if his injuries weren't too severe. And that was my role for probably the next half hours to try and figure out what's going on. Um, and get myself ready to head to the hill. Ryan in the garage immediately stopped what he was doing, put his, put his wrenches down, and started heading uphill to assist Jack. Um, and maybe Jack, it's a good time. About at the time where I was starting to pack up, making my phone calls, you were busy at that point, I believe. You want to jump in and figure out where you were. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was actually in Left Gully that day. Um, I bailed out about a third of the way up. It was a pretty low visibility day and just wasn't feeling great about it. So I got out of there and uh, was standing at the base of the bowl and heard someone yell out, help. And we yelled back, you okay? And we heard back, no. So right away, got my radio and uh, called Sauron Call, which happened to be Ryan down in the garage. Um, he connected me with me right away and said, hey, can you get to this patient? Um, so I traversed over, he was low in the left gully run out. Um, got there about 15 minutes later, and by that time there was one or two bystanders um, already on scene. They had wrapped a shirt around um, an injury on the patient's right elbow, and um, it was bleeding, had a, some shirt and like a ski band around it. Um, at that point we just started, you know, trying to get accurate information out to the rest of the Forest Service, um, to the IC, which was Jeff and Ryan. Um, as well as trying to figure out if the scene was safe, um, what had just happened, and how critical our patient was. Um, we started our treatment, um, had a little bit of gauze, and was able to, to have a little bit of pressure on that wound um, and control the bleeding, and then continued on 
on uh, the patient assessment system and um, gathered a lot of information. A couple other people from around the Marine um, showed up to help out, um, just other local skiers. Um, yeah, we we pretty much stripped all of our packs and and we had a whole bunch of extra layers and uh, a couple blankets, um, some snacks and some hot drinks and um, a couple of Sam splints and we were able to immobilize the other injury which uh, happened to be on the lower right leg. Um, and at that point, Ryan was going uphill. I was in contact with Jeff through the radio um, and we sent, we had a team of, of six overall and I sent two two of our team members down to Connection Cash, which is right by the helipad, um, to grab the sled and got it right back up, um, got our patient packaged, and then started to move uphill. Right. At that time, I, can, I remember one of the first things I thought of is I, I didn't know what the, I didn't know what the, what, I didn't really know exactly what happened at that point. I know that there was a, a sliding fall, a patient was injured, it was reported that it was an avalanche. You were, you, it was obvious that it was an avalanche debris. He was, he was, in, he was on top of the avalanche debris. Mm-hmm. I recall, I, I don't think I had to ask. I think some, you mentioned that the people that were there on scene had their beacons out. So they did a beacon check over the debris pile. There was nobody else buried. You guys felt pretty confident about that, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Right. And, um, so it, and then I remember at that point, yeah, you, were, you and I were able to talk on the radio. You asked about the patient. You had, you had done it. Your, your patient assessment went through. Um, you established there was... His injuries were severe, but they weren't life-threatening. No, um, you cleared his spine. No, no serious head injuries. It was just his his extremities at that point. So for me, knowing that the patient was, and you, I think you had the bleeding under control at that point. I didn't know the extent of his his wounds for the bleeding, but it seemed like it wasn't. He wasn't a critical patient, so it seemed like a carryout is, is the next step. If it were, sometimes we have those sort of falls, and the first thing we think of is taking a long fall down. You know, that's hundreds of feet of vertical to slide down and hitting these rocks. First thing is a mechanism of injury could be, could be head trauma. So we start thinking about helicopter. But it, that didn't seem to be the case, which is great because the weather wasn't, wasn't, weather wasn't that great. So we're, we're lucky in that regard. So you were at that point. So I, I, I was relieved. I know it's not a head injury. The patient is stable. So it's, it's going to be a transport at this point. So I started heading in that direction. I started driving at that point. And I think you met up with, probably at that point when I was driving, Ryan was heading up the hill to you. And then what did you do? You had to, it wasn't easy. You couldn't just pull mm-hmm. the litter downhill. You, so you had the patient packaged. And you had him wrapped in a hyper wrap. Patient was warm now. He stopped shivering. So you had to try and figure out how to get him out of there now that all the drama was over. You had a lot of work to do. Yeah, so we definitely had our work cut out for us there. Um, the litters have, have two ropes on each side. Um, and we, we had six people, so we tied two figure eights on a bite on each um, of the uphill ropes and put four people in front, two people in back. And we had to go uphill because downhill was full of these brambles and um, thigh high kind of crusty snow just was not on to be able to go that direction, um, especially with the litter and possible avalanche traps and just not a good look. So we, uh, we had to go uphill. Um, so we put four in front, two in the back. The two would push and then put their ice axes at the base as a break. Um, and those four in the front would all take one big step together and then stop, catch our breath. And we repeat that process for about 200, maybe 200 yards uphill. 
So the, the spot where you are, for people who know, know Left Gully, they know the terrain. So you are, and I was actually surprised to see how far down it was. He went down completely out of Left Gully, far down into sort of a, like a finger of a snowfield that heading down towards the floor of the ravine. And it's unfortunate you couldn't just cut across because you were well down towards the floor, but you had to go back up. And where the rock buttress turns left to shoot, you almost had to go back up to that buttress to drop down to the floor, didn't you? All the way there, right. all the way yeah. to the top there. Yeah. It seemed like a fair bit of work. <laughs> yeah, definitely <laughs> sore the next day. Yeah, yeah. So maybe if I can just, I have two things to add. And one is people might notice that we're not being very specific with the injuries. And just so folks know, I mean, that's so that we can protect privacy of, of the people. And there's a lot of HIPAA laws around this. So, you know, we're, we try not to get too specific with that, um, but we want to be transparent about it. And then the other piece of it is, um, you know, you, is what I'm thinking about this is um, this is a, an interesting inside perspective in real time from a rescuer's point of view where you have some of the story, but you don't have the full story. You don't really know the extent of the events and exactly how things played out. Um, so maybe, um, sorry to cut you off, Jeff, maybe we can keep going with how things played out, but then also circle back and just talk about like how things actually played out for these for these parties of, of, of who got people who were involved and were injured. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a good way to handle this. I know that from my role at that time, honestly, I could at that, like at two o'clock in the afternoon or December 5th, I could, I could really care less how it happened. We just have to make sure this, we get this person out safely to the road. And, um, and then that's, that's kind of the, what happened, what happened is what we start figuring out the following day and we can start talking to people. That's when we start thinking of these things. And, so I am to jump back into the stories in the timeline. I am so I'm driving my way to Pinkham. I have my radio and I could hear conversations. I'm following the conversations, asking about what's being done. And you're going back and forth talking to Ryan, Jack, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And Ryan met with you. Where were you in the ravine when Ryan is our other snow ranger is not here today? He hooked up with you just under shoot? Just under shoot, right before you go downhill to go um down to the floor of the green. Um, that was also about two hours after the initial incident, just for the timeline. All right, and it's and part of that comes in. I think it's it's worth Patrick touching this a little bit. We're not we're not talking too much about his injuries, and we'll say they're serious, but not, not life threatening. The emphasis is they were pretty serious, and it took some time to manage his injuries uh, before they could move. And um, I guess probably all we'll say about that. I think that sounds like that's where a lot of that time came in. Plus getting the litter from Connection Cash up to there, up to the point where they needed to put them in the litter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, was, there was a good amount of, of work to do in that patient assessment. And um, also just takes time to, to get that litter and to get, get packaged, really. All right. All, all these things, search and rescue is a funny thing where people, just this talking back in general, this isn't, this, this, this rescue is kind of an example of what's often typical for a search and rescue. I'm also on a search and rescue team and somebody gets hurt in the mountains if they think it's Swiss Air is going to fly in and pick them up. It's not always like that. It just, everything just takes hours. It takes a long time. We were, we'll jump to the end. We, we it was after dark by the time we get them to the road and this whole thing happened right around noontime. It's a long afternoon getting them out. So you had gotten back up the hill, Ryan connected with you, connected with you. And at this point to carry, you were sliding the litter in the snow, right? Yeah. At this point we're heading effectively kind of side hill, downhill, 
and using, at this point we picked up, I think, believe two more people. So now our numbers are nine, including Ryan, um, along with two bystanders that, that came through. So we pretty much had nine people acting as anchors as we slowly went downhill with the patient. Um, and then a carry out down the trail. And then and then the hard work starts because yeah. from connection cash down to Hermit Lake, it's primarily carrying the litter for the most part on that trail. There's just not that much snow, right? Yeah, mostly carrying, a lot of handing it side by side through through tricky spots and uh, even one belay. Right. And did you had nine people? Did that feel like enough people to carry the litter? Um, that I think through the whole process we had just about bare minimum yeah, of, uh, yeah. of of what we of what we needed. Um, we had just enough to get it done. Right. I think I counted nine people coming down uh, uh, down to Hermit Lake, and I know that from my experience, that's that's sort of the minimum to carry a litter, and nine people can't carry it very far on their own. Um, there's even places you had to belay the litter down the steep sections on the on the on the Tucks Trail before Hermit Lake. Yeah. Yes, yeah. we did absolutely. Yeah. So I. It's funny. So I, I I could make my phone calls, do what I needed to do, drive in, hike all the way up from the road, and I still made it to Hermit Lake before you guys did. Mm. Um, not very far. So I reached to Hermit Lake just about the time we were coming down that last deep bit. So I, I think I connected with the whole group at Hermit Lake. Right. Yeah, about a couple hundred yards away. Yeah, yeah. So we got everybody together. People were people were tired and hungry. They didn't. It, it was great. We had a lot of people that came in from the outside to help, sort of bystanders, and that, that often helps. Actually, it's a pretty neat. It's a pretty neat thing that happens. But in some way, they were lucky that there were people around. It could. You can't count on bystanders. Mm. Today, I think there's not that many people, and they could be in trouble to find people. So people were tired. They were hungry. They needed food. They didn't plan on spending hours on a rescue. So they, everybody stopped at that point at Hermit Lake. We checked the patient. Patient's fine. He's warm. He's in good spirits. He's kind of joking around a little bit in spite of his injuries. He was, he was doing okay. Rescuers were tired and hungry. They had to stop and they had to eat. I remember I passed out. I had a case of the worst flavored power bar I've ever had <laughs> in the cabin that's been there for a couple of years and they were, they were psyched to get those. Yeah, you knew we were tired because we were psyched to eat those. Yeah, and nobody else has eaten those since or before that. So they had all the power bars and I think at that point... Um, I tied in. So from my role at that point was just to basically assist getting everybody down out of the field. And it was, it got a lot easier really. By the time, it's great for me. By the time I got there, the hard work was over. We could just, I think you took off. We didn't need you at that point, Jack. You went back to your cabin, Harvard cabin. And we, the party, we had a pretty easy job of pulling him down the Sherburne Ski Trail. And lucky, luckily there was snow all the way to the bottom. So by the time we were at Hermit Lake, I called Gorham Ambulance, Gorham EMS, and had them come with an ambulance and meet us at the trailhead. And it was pretty, it was just real straightforward. I think it took us, it took you over two hours to get from like maybe three quarters of a mile to get to Hermit Lake. And we made it down to the road in an hour. It was fast. Yeah. It was a fast walk dragging the slide all the way down. Yeah, I think it was two hours to meet up with Ryan, which was right, like right around top, uh, the opening of, of Left Gully and then yeah. a, an hour to get from there to right. Ojo's. Right, right. All right. And the, and the patient was doing okay the whole time. We were talking to him on the way down, and he had hit a rock every once in a while and kind of give out a little bit of a moan. But he, he knew what he was in for, and he was, he was, he was in good spirits, and he was, he, was, he was good about it. We're doing the best we can to avoid rocks, but it's, there's just rocks everywhere this time of year. It's, it's, it's all we could do. And we met at the road. Gorm Ambulance was there, and they, they, this, uh, this gentleman's parents were there, and we all said hi and loaded him up in the ambulance and sent him on his way. Yeah. 
so then over the next hours day um, is kind of when you and Ryan again I was off we were able to piece together you were taking your EMS I, I was, you, yeah, you were I was, taking your EMT I was in an EMT course um, right but Would have been great that, that's kind of the time when um, you're able to really get an accurate picture of what the events were and what happened yeah so maybe if you can talk about that um, that'd be helpful for folks yeah Typically, in an ideal world, what we do, these, these sort of things are interesting for us in some ways. It's great when, when people don't get too hurt, but typically what we do is we'd go right up there the very next day and get right up. And I saw a photo of an of a interesting looking crown line, and it would, have been, it would have been nice had we'd had the ability to go up there the next day and dig around in the snow and try and figure out exactly what the weak layers were. Why did this avalanche happen specifically? We know in general sense, but specifically, why did it happen? What was the snowpack like? What was the weak layer? just to get a sense of the whole scene, um, what was the avalanche like? And the truth is it didn't rain that night. It rained pretty hard. I forget. I think we might've had like an inch of rain over the next 20 hours. And that just changes. It obliterates any evidence that's interesting, worth recording or checking out. So we didn't go up on the rain the next day. Um, so we don't really know specifics about the, about the actual snowpack, but it freed me up. I spent the next day or two, um, talking to people that were involved. I'm trying to you know, if I can't figure out exactly why the slope avalanche, it's another part of the whole picture is, is kind of the human decision making that goes into this. Why were why were people there? What were they doing? What was their mindset? What was their thoughts that brought them there? And their decision making that, that led up to this. And so the next probably the next day or two, I ended up making a lot of phone calls. And and it's it's a it's kind of a neat process to talk to people, I think, because we're all. I think at least in this case, well, generally, I'd say that people are really happy to talk and, and honest about just the mistakes they made and, and the things they did right and the things they did wrong. And usually people understand what they did wrong. I don't, I don't have to say anything about, about that. They're, they're smart about their assessments and, and they know they made mistakes. And so we, we could talk to these people and, and it's an interesting conversation to have with all these guys and they're forthcoming. And so, and there, everybody was really eager to talk and tell their story. And that was that sort of made my job easier for the next day. But my first phone call was, I think the first contact I ended up making was a, a gentleman who was part of the, well, maybe, maybe I should back up. Let's talk about what happened before I talk about who was in there. So here, here's what I know about that day. And again, I, I, it's, it's worth saying that I wasn't, I wasn't on the scene. Everything that I'm about ready, to, that everything that I'm going to say is from interviewing all the people that were involved. So this is all secondhand information. But I talked to... I pretty much talked to everybody except for one person. So I, everybody's, it all seems to match up. So at that day, the weather in the bowl was pretty comfortable weather-wise. It wasn't too cold. It wasn't too warm. It wasn't too windy, but it was cloudy. The cloud cover had sunk down below the top of the head wall. So you couldn't see the tops of any of the gullies. It was, it was pretty thick fog. People were around, people were climbing, people were skiing. I think Left Gully that day had seen a number of off and on runs. It's been seeing a number of off and on runs for a number of days, um, for a little while. Two party, two people ended up getting there, uh, early-ish in the day. They, they believe they might've been the first people to go up left gully, maybe mid morning. They made it to the top. They were in no rush. They were checking the snowpack out on their way, their, their way up. They knew we had recent snow. They were concerned about the recent snow 
they were looking at the snow as they were climbing, and they didn't they didn't see any any red flags that jumped out at them that made them that made them turn around or, or change their decision in any way. They didn't see shooting cracks. They didn't see they didn't see much that that made them nervous. When they got closer to the top, they started. There was the snow became a little bit softer, so they they were conducting what's called a hand shear, where it's kind of this quick, easy test. You can use your hand and you can kind of pull away at the surface of the snow. You push your hand in the snow and you pull down. How does it seem like it's stuck to the snow? It's it's not a, it's not a real thorough test, but it's a kind of test you could do over and over again and at least figure out what the top surface of the snow is going to do. It, it's effective for what it is. And they still felt comfortable with the snow that they were seeing. They made it to the top. They were in no rush. The weather, again, was pretty nice, so they... I think they lollygagged a little bit up near the top of the gully and they, you know, they made the transition to ski down and they decided uh, towards the top there was, they did notice kind of a softer pillow of snow, like maybe a fresh wind slab that was climber's right as they were climbing up, up towards the top. If you know left gully, there's climber's right up near the very top gets pretty steep. And uh, they saw that wind slab over there. They ended up, they ended up climbing left to avoid it. They knew it was there they estimated it was maybe six inches deep. They were concerned about it, but they weren't, they weren't, it sounded to me they weren't overly concerned. They thought they could manage that either by skiing around it uh, or across the top and turning under it. It was, it was a small pocket of snow. They weren't terribly, they weren't terribly concerned from, from, from what I could gather. So they transitioned and they were ready to ski. At the same time, there was a solo skier that had headed up from the bottom he got to the bottom of the alley and looked up, and he didn't. He didn't see anybody there. He couldn't see the top because of the fog, but he didn't see. He didn't see signs of anybody above him. As far as he knew, he thought he might have been the only one in the gully, at least, or at least nobody above him. He ran into a skier who just came down left gully. I, I don't think that skier went to the top. I think he went halfway and skied down and got a little bit of feedback from him, but no indication there was anybody above him. So he he thought he was essentially alone in the gully. He made it to about halfway, a little bit more than halfway up the gully. Something, something made him become cautious and decided that was enough for him. And it wasn't the snowpack. It was, I think, lots of little things. He was by himself. It was kind of steep. It's his first run of the year. He went halfway. He was happy with that. He, at that time, was he took his skis off his pack, which were on his, his skis were on his pack. He was getting ready to transition. I think he just pulled his skins off. And was getting ready to take his crampons off. And he would think he described just looking down at his feet at his crampons, thinking he's got to get these off his feet. At the same time, the skiers above decided to start. They decided to begin their descent. First skier went down and knew the wind slab was there and sort of skied across. The, he was going to ski across the top of it, make a turn, then come under it. And they started down skiers left or climbers right at the top of left gully, the steep bit. When he skied across the top of this little slab, it gave way under his feet. It was small, but it's pretty steep there. And it knocked him off his feet, and he started sliding. He slid down. He probably, I don't know how much, how much vertical terrain that was, but looking at it on it from about where he said he triggered the thing, he probably, probably dropped down maybe 200 vertical feet and uh, triggered a deeper, bigger avalanche that went side to side. Left gully is like a tube. It's got rock walls on both sides. And it went all the way from one rock wall to the other. 
part of the, the avalanche itself was fairly deep. At one end, it was maybe 20 to 24 inches. I'm not entirely sure. We didn't go measure it. But from the pictures and a ski pole picture, it looks like that's about right. The other end was pretty thin. But it's, it's certainly a good volume of snow. And he went for the ride with that volume of snow. So he took the ride all the way to the bottom uh, in that avalanche. And our solo skier was in there looking down at his crampons. And he might have even been looking at his feet. He got hit by the same snow. So they both went for a ride. The skier that was up high ended up on top of the snow. He was uninjured. He was over near the rock buttress where it turns to go under chute, kind of skiers left. And he got up and I think the first thing he did was was happy that he was not buried. He stood up out of the snow. There was enough snow to bury a person easily. He was fine. He was, I think, collecting himself. And his, the skier above, his partner, saw this whole thing go down and immediately put his skis on and just chased him down down the slope. Um, he got to the bottom. I think the skier above described to me, he made it about as far as, say, three quarters of the way down where it felt like maybe the debris started and he got his avalanche beacon out and started searching, which he described as being kind of a nightmare because there was a bunch of other skiers around the bowl, maybe not that far away. So he pulled out his beacon looking for a signal. And I think he had like four or five, even though they're from a distance. And there's ways, there's ways to mitigate that with, with if you're good with your beacon, but he skied down, um, found his partner. It didn't take long before he found his partner. He knew his partner was okay on top of the snow. And then they saw the, the solo skier sitting on top. He was on top of the snow as well, but laying there, he was injured. He described to me at that point, he, they it took a minute to ignore the solo skier. They searched the debris field with their beacon for kind of a fine search, and they didn't find another signal. And then they dove into helping the solo skier that was injured. His bleeding was uh, was a problem for sure. And they, they were able to manage that. The bleeding stopped on its own, which was great. And then I think shortly after, Jack, you showed up. Yeah, that would be right when I show up right yeah. there. Yeah. So that that's what led. So that's that's sort of how, that's how, how the whole thing went down. It was an avalanche that was essentially triggered by somebody from above. And, and then the carryout happened. And so, you know, talking to the people, everybody was carrying an avalanche beacon. They had avalanche rescue gear. The skiers above were concerned about the snow. They did not know there was anybody below them. The person who was in the middle of the slope didn't know there was anybody above him. But talking with them, they do know, you know, the solo skier knew he was taking a risk. He was, he knows the dangers of solo skiing and he knows what, what that means. If he was buried in an avalanche, if there's nobody there that day, if he triggered the avalanche himself and was injured and there was nobody else there, that could have been, it could have gone really poorly for him. And, and he knew that. He, you know, he's, sometimes as humans, we, we kind of go through this, this our life and we, we try not to take risks, but sometimes we're kind of lured into it a little bit. And that, that's how he describes what his day was like. He's, he was being cautious, but he thought he would stick his neck out a little bit. He knew the risks and it, and it didn't work out for him. The skiers above. I, I don't think they were, I don't. I don't think they had a, an idea that somebody was below. They didn't intentionally trigger an avalanche. They were looking to trigger an avalanche, and I think it's just something that happened. They were trying to be careful themselves, and I think what what happens is just there's just so many people trying to use a small resource. It's it was really the only full length run in the in the ravine. It's been skied quite a bit over the last few weeks, and. I think everybody thought they were more or less doing the right thing, but when you put that many people in the terrain with some avalanche hazard, it's 
it's, it's not an ideal situation for anybody. It would have been great if the weather was clear and they were able to visualize who's in the train or who's above them, or maybe the skiers above could say, hey, look, there's somebody down there. Let's, let's wait till he climbs up. I know skiers will do that a lot to try and, try and eliminate risk for skiers below. You know, we all try and do the best we can, but if you had an avalanche danger in cold weather and low visibility, and it, it's just hard to know all the factors, uh, how, how, what your actions can mean to other people. So that's, that's kind of how the event went down. The patient, uh, I talked to the patient who was injured at the hospital, and we've, we've actually talked quite a bit since then. He's home now, and he's eager to get the clearance from his doctor to start physical therapy. He's eager to get back skiing. He's, it may not happen this year. We'll see. He's, he's pretty banged up. He's pinned and plated, and he's, he's got some metal in him. And, but he's fine. He's at home, and um, yeah, that's how... This event uh, makes me think of a couple, um, you know, situations that are pretty characteristic of, of our area in the early season. And one of them Jeff just touched on, which is, um, you know, there's limited terrain and that tends to funnel people into the same areas. And that creates a situation where there's, you know, sometimes crowded areas or at least multiple people or multiple parties trying to be on one objective. Um, and you know, this can, this can be a, uh, a really dangerous proposition and it can raise the hazard of your day by a lot <clears throat> just by increasing the number of people that are either, you know, generally it's, it's above you. If you're, if you're the, per, if you're the person who's below, if you're the party that's below other people, you're in, increasing your hazard significantly. Um, and it's a hazard that you have no control over, um, like other objective hazards. Um, but people sometimes don't think of other people as being a hazard, but often, especially in this early season, season environment, it's one of the biggest ones. Um, and then the other, the other big one that's kind of specific to early season is, um, just what the, terrain looks like in terms of runouts. So I think a lot of the injuries in this instance, you know, this could have happened at these injuries could have happened in any avalanche at any time of year, but particularly right now, um, our runouts are nasty. They're filled with rocks they're filled with trees they are filled with ice, things that are just unforgiving to the body. And in a lot of ways, um, the, the, the person who was injured in this incident, is, is pretty lucky that it wasn't worse, that there wasn't head trauma or, or, or other more life-threatening injuries, um, because that has played out in our terrain um, many times over the years. And so it's something to think about as you start to um, get into the backcountry this year in our terrain is, um, you know, you should always think about what happens if I, what happens if I blow it here? What happens if I get avalanched here? You know, what's below me? What am I gonna run into? Um, and that can be a hard thing to think about, but it is something that you should be thinking about. Um, I don't know if you guys have any more th to add about that. Um, right. I mean, this. so this incident happened, you said, 2 o'clock on Sunday? Uh, started at around 12 o'clock. Oh, 12 o'clock. So yeah. you got down to Hermit Lake at... Um, I tied in with Ryan right around 2 and then probably about an hour, which would be 3 for Hermit Lake. And then you got down to Pinkham Notch at like 5? Five. 5, right? right? Yeah, probably Hermit Lake at 3, 3.30, maybe 5 o'clock by the road. It would, it would, it had, we'd, it was well on its way to being dark by then. 
but maybe closer to six at the ambulance. Yeah, yeah it was definitely headlamps on the way out. Yeah, yeah. And it's certainly a little slower, you know, this early season because you can't run the snow machines up and or the cat or whatever you guys have for transportation. This is like manual the whole way. So, yeah, this is it's important to see that and acknowledge that timeline, start to finish. It it's hard too. It's it's if you think about from a from a, uh, a rescuer standpoint, you know, you to get injured right now in the ravines, it, it takes it takes a, a lot of people, a lot of work to to get somebody out safely. And it's, it's, and in, in, in some sense, it's, this went pretty smooth. This was, this ended up being a good one. I mean, there were people on scene that could help. There was enough people to carry the litter. If we, if there weren't enough people to carry the litter, it ends up, you know, from my role, it's like, maybe it was just Jack, but it was just a day where there's just not that many people around. It's just Jack in, the, in, in there and Jack and this other person or Ryan would have headed up. Two people are not going to be able to move that litter effectively. They would start. I would say, can you just please do the best you can, start moving the litter as best you can. We'll get people on their way. Right now, I called Appalachian Mountain Club. They had a couple of people that were available, but not very many. If we had to pull more people in, we're looking at calling one of the volunteer rescue teams like Avsar MRS. So I could say, okay, my next conversation would be like, Jack and Ryan, you guys do the best you can. We're going to have volunteers. We'll be on scene in two and a half, three, three hours. Do the best you can. It's going to take a lot longer because these folks are driving in from Gorm and North Conway and they have to come in there and they all have to hike up because there's no there's no machine access. It just takes a lot of people, a lot of effort to rescue somebody right now. Yeah. And to that point, um, I had six people and none of us, we were all just out recreating. So we, you know, I had a little bit of gear for med. Some other people had a little bit of gear, but we just barely had enough in terms of resources to, to handle the, the injuries and to keep to keep the patient warm and fed and, and, you know, um, hydrated. So yeah, to his point, um, probably had the bare minimum and that was with six people, um, to compare it to just being me or just a couple other people, we might've had a, a different outcome or a very different situation. For, for a big carry out like that, an ideal, I'd be thinking about like an ideal number for a carry out like that over that terrain that we could be looking at, say, 20 would be a good number. 20 would make it go fairly smoothly because when you're carrying, if you're actually on the litter on one side, we'll have, say, we could have maybe six people on the litter. You can't continue, you can't continue it. It's just, it's just hard. You're holding a fair bit of weight, walking in on comfortable ground. So we have people rotating in and out and it just takes a lot of people to effectively move a litter. It's just how it is. It's just, it's not a great time. It's, it's not a great time to need a rescue in the mountains at the moment. It is easier. It's still not a great time in the spring. Like nobody, I don't want to see anybody get injured in the spring. I don't want to rescue anybody out of the mountains, but it, it is more straightforward in the springtime or say late winter snowpack and we have machine access. We can, we could slide somebody almost all the way down to Hermit Lake and it can go pretty quick. And then with a machine, we can get into the road pretty fast, but that's, that's where, the, that's if we're there. I you know there's, we're not there every day of the winter. We don't, we'll rescue people, um, we have an obligation to rescue people, but we don't have an obligation to stand there and wait around for a rescue. We could be, you know, it could, that same day, Patrick and I could have been over and over on the west side looking at snow in the Amnusic Ravine, and to get over there it takes a long time. So it's just, rescues don't happen, they often don't happen fast, and they just take time. It's, as a rescuer, I always wish people consider how long and how much effort it is, and how long they're going to have to sit there and wait for rescue. It's just, it's just the nature of the beast. And to that point, and maybe to wrap up the, the incident here, is, um, you know, we're talking about this today because it's a, 
we feel it's a educational opportunity for folks to hear about these incidents and how they happen and why they happen and what the response realistically looks like. And, um, you know, we certainly don't do it, um, to single out people making certain decisions or, or place blame at all. That's not uh, at all why we do this, but we, we do feel that it is an incredible learning opportunity to be able to, to dissect an incident like this and, um, and look at um, decisions that were made objectively and, and think about, you know, why were, why were they made and, and how did that play out for folks? And um, I guess one, one thing I try to just ask is, is that people are respectful and, you know, I've made mistakes um, while traveling and climbing, skiing in the mountains. And um, I'm lucky to have gotten away with all of them. And I'm sure Jeff would say the same and Jack would say the same and Andrew would say the same is um, we, we've all messed up and, and done stupid things. And we, you know, it's, it, I, I, there's a quote that Jeff wrote in his, um, in his write up that I'm probably going to butcher, but it's something to the effect of, uh, um, exp- or do you remember what I guess I'm going to, I'm going to completely, yeah. Ex- do you remember it? Experience is a terrible teacher. You have the test first and the lesson later yeah and i think we all i mean if you spent enough time skiing or climbing in the backcountry you can relate to that and um you know a lot of times it's just a it's just a uh, product of probability and it, it can happen to to anybody and so um we like to be humble when we're talking about these things and uh and yeah we ask that people you know it's easy to kind of armchair quarterback these situations and say oh i wouldn't do that or or that was a stupid decision or why why would you ever do that i don't i've done that i don't say that right no i'm and i'm not saying that any <laughs> yeah. Of, yeah yeah but but we do hear it we, we do, do see right? it online it's and easy. it's it's, it's easy not to fun say. to see online and um and so we try to just talk about that because you know at the end of the day these instances can be um educational and we can all learn from them and it can all help it can be help us all be safer when we're out there so i just i like to throw that in there when we're talking about these accidents yeah i agree i agree yeah those instagram comments can get brutal so that's awful i i I think those instagram comments if you spend enough time in the mountains for any of us you know you look back and some days you just go home and you're eating your dinner and you realize i was really stupid today but i got away with it you know, you, you just know that. And that's all of us. I know we've all done that. I've done that before. And, and you don't go into the day thinking you're going to do stupid things. It's subtle how you get lured into these, these sort of whatever reason, mind traps, wrong decision making, you're missing big clues. You're overestimating your ability. There's just, it, we're just humans. We don't, we don't do everything perfectly all the time. It's just the way it goes. What, should we talk about snowpack a little bit before? upcoming snowpack let's talk about the snowpack for the avalanche sure i think some snow geeks are okay. questioning why this act i know i've seen comments yeah, about that Yeah, let's just briefly sum it up yeah and it's gonna be brief because the truth is we don't really know there's i know i've gotten some people asking exactly like why exactly did this accident happen what was the weak layer what was the snowpack and and the truth is we just we just don't know we we're we're in the middle of like i said we're writing a, a general bulletin that comes out maybe every few days we'll, we'll update it when there's going to be a different weather event we are not in the terrain every single day at this point. I was in the terrain uh, around Tux like five or six days before that. And we weren't there the day after, so I just don't know exactly why it happened. But I can say that it is pretty obvious looking back. If, if you look at the Mount Washington Observatory, they have this thing called the F6, and it's a daily recording of how much snow that falls. 
And if you look at the F6 for the weather leading up to that day, I'm looking at it right here, actually, it's in front of me. So there's roughly six and a half or seven inches of snow fell in the four days prior to that. Every day it was on a west wind that was not too extreme. I think it blew hard for a little bit, but it was generally kind of a moderate west wind, which tends to load versus scouring. So, you know, it's six and a half or seven inches of snow on a west wind. You're going to have east-facing slopes and lead terrain. They're going to load with snow. So it seems like kind of an easy formula to figure out why the snow is in that spot. And and they found it. And it was maybe it wasn't stuck to the slope as well as they thought it would be. And I, I really don't know much more than that. Somebody that was unseen thought the avalanche itself, if you're an avalanche person, it might have been, say, D1.5, maybe D2, which is plenty enough to bury somebody and kill somebody. And it seemed to run maybe a good part of the slope, so it was like R3. We'll call it D1.5 or D2 R3 for the, the actual avalanche. That's pretty much all I know about it because of the weather and the conditions before and after. Yeah. Cool. Well, Conf confirmed. No, it, I mean, from the, the observatory and the wind loading, like, it's that's the spot like that's why left gully is in right now because it is getting it gets so wind loaded we only got 12 inches of snow before leading into thanksgiving or so that um i saw some photos it was in down to like down to the corner there um so it doesn't take much of these little wind events to create a hang pocket that can slide and trigger other pockets you know that's the thing it's like if you're up there and you're digging your little hand shears, you're going to notice a ton of variability going up left gully. You're going to hit these little pockets of fresh snow, then to like nothing, back into bigger pockets. So it seems to check out. It's just that uncertainty of like that hanging, those hanging um, slabs up there when they're going to release and how fresh they are. And um, it always looks like this beautiful canvas. I've always seen it up there. Like you want to make this big carving, arcing turn up there, but realize that there's a reason why that's filled with snow all the time. And yeah, no, it's something that like I'm, I'm guilty of too. I've been up there on that, that exact same spot and um, that little spine that goes up to the kind of the viewpoint up there of, on the shoulder. It's uh, yeah, I can totally relate and see how someone could get up there and be like, Oh yeah, like I just want to make one turn and, and check it out. And uh, yeah. And then not know again, who's below you. It, it's tough terrain, too, from a management standpoint of your skier. A lot of our terrain is like this. It's crazy if you think about what we have. We, we like at the Avalanche Center, we sometimes we describe our ski runs as like tubes or like half pipes. And it's like, it's like jumping on the barrel of a gun and wondering if there's a bullet in there. You don't have a way. Once you get into Left Gully, there's, it's sidewalls. You can't easily get out. You can't, you can't go sideways and escape an avalanche. Or you can't escape a problem. There's no islands of safety until you get all the way down to the floor of the ravine. You're just into it. And it's it makes makes it makes it challenging. You know, you can't you can't ease into it in any way. You can't go check it out. You're just you're you're not into it and you're into it. And there's no in between. Moving on. Yeah. We're running, out, running out of time here. So it is Friday. Today is the seventeenth as we're recording this, and we do have a storm coming in, which is, you know, exciting. I think we're all looking for some snow on the ground. So haven't really dug into it, but Patrick, what what's what's going on? Yeah, I'll keep it brief. Um, but yeah, we're also really excited. Um, storm rolling into the area Saturday afternoon. And, um, you know, it's super warm today. We were up at Herman Lake and it was probably in the 40s. Um, it, it was above freezing. And um, 
you know, but that's changing. So temperatures consistently dropping uh, today into tomorrow. And so this storm is actually coming in pretty cold. Um, so we're expecting some light <clears throat> density snow coming in. Um, starting, uh, it looks like starting on an easterly, um, kind of coming in from the coast. And then as the storm leaves by Sunday midday, um, those winds are going to shift westerly and then increase as we see often uh, in our area. And, um, and so that's when we're going to see some of that loading coming kind of back onto the, the snow, moving back onto the eastern slopes. Um, so, you know, that's all I'll say for now. I, I guess I'll say that, you know, it's, it's forecasted to be uh, over, well over an inch of water um, translating. It's hard to call it right now, but initially I'm thinking a foot or more solid foot anyways yeah yeah um but you know we're keeping an eye on it and um we're planning on having a another general um, bulletin out tomorrow so folks can keep an eye out for that and that should be a little more, bit more detailed about uh what to expect that's exciting um yeah so you guys will have your forecast up and, uh, and yeah. I will just, sorry, I just add to that um, along the lines of that. If you're on our site, you can actually subscribe to our forecast um, via email. So if you if you are too lazy to go on the site and check the forecast, it can we've made it easy for you. So you can just uh, that'll just come right into your inbox uh, every morning if you sign up for that. And, and we don't we don't send out any other any other uh, spam or newsletters. It's just the forecast. We haven't yet. <laughs> Waiting for that moment. And you guys got some other stuff going on, um, YouTube channel. Oh yeah, we've been uh, we've been really trying to update our YouTube channel. So we've been cutting up a lot of the talks that happened at Esau this year. Those are starting to trickle in onto our YouTube channel. Um, and as as us as forecasters um, start to get into the terrain, we'll be um, trying to post video updates on there for everybody. So check that out and subscribe to that. Um, and then lastly, uh, event coming up tomorrow night put on by Tuckerman Brewing. Um, so if you're in town in the Conway area, um, Tuckerman Brewing's hosting a, uh, backcountry kick kickoff night. And I believe Andrew, are you going to be there? Mm -hmm. Um, and some of the other local nonprofits are going to be there. Our support organization, um, friends of Tuckerman and the Avalanche Foundation. And, um, I, I believe she jumps is going to be there as well. Um, and a couple other folks. Yeah, bring a kid's coat, a little clothing clothing drive too. There'll be some awesome raffles. I know we'll, we'll find some fun stuff to, to give away. Um, yeah, events, they're going to be rolling throughout the, the season. So check the, the MWAC page. There's a little calendar that gets updated pretty frequently worth, uh, worth seeing what's up and whether it's like um, some of these talks, presentations. We did a lot of Zoom stuff last year and in years past we've had actual in-person presentation. So those, those will be listed up there as well. Um, and I just want to sort of end this by saying, get to know your snow rangers, get to know your caretakers. These are all important resources we have out there. Not only are they the first like on scene to a lot of incidents and search and rescue stuff that's happening up, up in uh, the white mountains, but they're also full of information on current conditions too. And whether they've been out there firsthand or spoken to someone else on the radio, they, they're in the know. They're like, they're someone worth stopping and, and asking, um, hey, what's going on? Go into Hermit Lake, go into Harvard Cabin. Um, yeah, and if you see people coming down, talk to them too. So, you know, 
this community, it's um, everyone's pretty friendly and willing to just throw in their two cents of what they've seen. And, you know, if someone's coming up the trail and you're going down, let them know what you saw, like pass along some information. Um, that's really important. I, I know that sometimes we were really closed off or we're just like really mission driven sometimes when we want to go make some turns, but um, get to know the people around you and, and share the information. And um, just like we're doing now, talking about the incident and the forecast and what we've seen with snowpack, all this stuff is just information to help you make educated decisions out there. I'd like to, my last word is make a plug for observations on our website. We, it's really helpful for us for people who put in observations on our website. And that could be everything from a detailed snow pilot profile to uh, whatever, whatever you found with your snow pit, or even just a photo of the terrain or just a report back. You found deep snow in Central Gully, deep soft snow in Central Gully. We'll take any information we can get and you can put that in our website. And it's great for us. It's great for us to help figure out what's going on all over the place. We can't be everywhere at once, but I think it's also great for just everybody else out there. I, I like to think of the forecast as community-supported forecast. We're all into this together, and spreading information just helps everybody stay safe and make better decisions. So we'll take, please put in an observation this winter if, you're, if you see anything interesting. It's useful to us. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing everybody out there. Um, look out for each other. Come say hi. And... Uh, be safe. All right. Thanks guys.